you for tuning into the Radic Cards podcast and RadicCards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and today we're going to be talking about some strategy points and, well, some auctions and things. So let's get right into it here. Uh, Ryan, thanks for joining me again today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, let's talk about eBay for a minute. As a lot of you might know, I do a lot of eBay research as part of like incorporation for a blog, you know, and uh, these podcasts and things. So, of course, buying things from my own collections or whatever. And, you know, sometimes I'll also sell and I'll sell large collections. And, you know, um, there's a strategy for selling on eBay that allows, um, well, it depends on how you sell on eBay. So here's the thing is that if you have, let's say, a large collection of one player that you got from somebody who player collected that player for a long time, and you're, you know, like you've got, you know, six to eight months to list it all and, and, and sell it. This happened to me in 2010. I had eight months. I sold a really big Jose Canseco collection. Really nice pieces. Anything from like, you know, 98 Donish Crusade Red to like early game used Jersey autos to, you know, like a brick of base and really high end memorabilia pieces like signed gloves and bats and just a ton of stuff. So I was listing like hundreds of items. I think I was doing 100 a day, 80 to 100 auctions a day for months. So at any given time, I had hundreds of auctions listed and ending. And so I was busy. I was taking you know piles of stuff to the post office all the time. What I realized is that when I flooded the market like that, it's hard for buyers because that's those are big financial commitments and there's, they come at a surprise. People don't plan for that stuff. Yeah. Right? So... When that happens, unless I have, you know, three grand just sitting just for this particular thing, this instance, then I'm sort of out of luck on a lot of that stuff. And if I'm flooding the market with tons of high end all at the same time, like say hundreds of autos and hundreds of rare 90s inserts and, you know, countless base and really nice, all the stuff I listed, when I flood the market, if I say, let's say I have... At one point, I think in that Conseco collection, I had something like 15 of the same buyback auto. And they were numbered to like, I think, 150 to 200, whatever it was. They were hand numbered. You know the ones I'm talking about, Ryan, from 2001 yeah. SP. That 2000 SP stuff. So the first one sold really well. Like, you know, I got like 60 bucks for it. But as I kept listing them, obviously the prices will go down because the market will correct, knowing that there's so many coming through the pipeline. And so I think the last one I sold was like 20 some dollars. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, because it, it, I was listing a bunch of them at one time, you know, like, you know, and or five at once and then another five at once and another five, whatever. I can't remember now. It's been so long. It's nine years ago now. But when I did that, I realized that, that values per item start to go down a little bit. Granted, what I, the best way to do that is do it every other Friday because no, you benchmark it off of people's paycheck intervals. That way they can plan to have enough money set aside to bid on some of these nice things. Now, to what degree of how many items you want to list at one time? Well, it's kind of hard to measure that, right? You just, there's no way to do that. But you can say, well, I've got 3,000 items. Let's list 200 of them this week. And over the course of several months, we'll blow them all out. We'll sell them all. So if I flood the market, I destabilize market, like uh, the, the value of things. But if I drip them out over time, and, you know, kind of look at things like, okay, people get paychecks every two weeks. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll list blocks of this stuff every two weeks for a long time. And then people can, you know, I might get higher bids on things knowing that people aren't 
like hurting their bank account every time. So this is the kind of like auction strategy between flooding and dripping into the auction. Like the flood method is put everything up there as quickly as possible and sell it all at once. It's just hard on buyers. I've been in that situation as a buyer. It's really hard on my wallet. It's just tough. I can't predict when those things are going to happen. So I like try to set aside some money just in case that happens. Happened recently. I didn't buy any. Like I think I bought like three or four cars of this giant collection that was listed. Most of it I already had, but the stuff I didn't have, I didn't have you know several grand to just blow out of the gate. But if he listed that collection a little bit at a time over the course of several months. I probably would have been able to finance one or two of the key pieces I needed in that collection that I didn't buy when he listed it because he listed, you know, this so many hundreds of cards all at once. So, Ryan, have you have you come across this before? Yeah, and you know, we were just looking at uh, uh, Keith Van Horn listings. Oh yeah. Um, obviously Keith Van Horn is less popular than um, Frank Thomas or a Jose Canseco right. kind of player. But um, it, it really kind of is, I think it's a lose-lose situation for the buyer and the seller when everything is kind of thrown up there at once. And if if you're the seller, unless you're an official eBay store, you're going hit, to get hit pretty hard with fees and shipping all at once. And I think a lot of people don't quite take into account how significant that cost can be once you start selling 10, 20, 30 items at once. Um, and everything is ending around the same time and then being shipped at the same time. Um, so that's another kind of check in the drip column is that you can space out your shipping and service fees a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I've experienced this with some players I collect all, all of a sudden, like just a bunch of things will, will drop on the market. Um, and the prices get kind of, get kind of wacky. It's, it's kind of hard to predict and you know it's it's unfortunate when that happens and i i understand that some sellers are just they just want to get rid of stuff they just yeah. have inventory right. they're trying to get rid of right um totally get it um but if you have the patience and you have the, the timetable flexibility um i i would definitely recommend spacing it out a little more so with the fees thing a lot look that's just part of it's like driving a car the fees associated with driving it's like gas time maintenance and repairs right so with the fees that's just part of selling granted if you're selling anything they're not going to charge you 100 percent. so the fees are kind of just absorbed by the sale mm -hmm. you know and if you're a high volume seller to get around some of the fees is you'd get a store going you wouldn't just list without a store see what you could do with the store thing this is another piece of it is that the store fee, I think, right now is seventy-five dollars a month without looking at it. Okay, let's just let's just use that figure for this. It's seventy-five dollars a month to run a, an eBay store. Change from a generic eBay pro like dashboard to an eBay store dashboard. Seventy-five bucks a month. It makes sense to move to a store when your sales exceed seventy-five dollars a month. It doesn't make sense to move to a store until you've exceeded that monthly threshold because then you're losing money. If if you only bring if you're only if your monthly bills for eBay sales are 40 50 bucks and you own a store then you're wasting $25 or the difference between your monthly bill and the monthly bill associated with having a store. This is kind of where I am with these things like I understand like okay, when do I migrate to a store? 
you know, at what point does it make sense to do that? If I'm high volume enough, at some point it'll make total sense to move to a store. If if I'm selling like tens of thousands of items a week, then a store option would be very very desirable because my cost savings would be uh, definitely a plus, huge in the black, like huge. But if I'm selling two or three pieces here, one there, a couple there, one there, every over space of a month, having a store option doesn't really make any sense because I just don't have enough volume going to make it make sense financially from a fiscal standpoint. Does that make sense, Ryan? Oh, yeah, totally. So the store option is really nice for that sort of thing. Now, if you're if you're planning on selling a large collection, like a huge player collection like I did in 2010, having that store option would make sense because if I'm selling thousands of pieces over the course of eight months, tens of thousands of pieces, my my bill, if I don't have a store, is going to be vastly exceed my 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 monthly store bill. And that's when having a store would have made sense for me in 2010. I didn't get, I didn't move over to a store in 2010. I, but looking in hindsight now, it's always 2020, right? Is that the right. store option would have made sense to me then. So, but, you know, once you, you, get done selling that one collection and if it's a one-of opportunity you can move it back down uh, like uh, what do they call that demote your your status from store to the generic ebay dashboard at least that's my understanding as ebay allows you to kind of move back and forth that's been my understanding of how that i don't quote me on that because i haven't i haven't needed to go back and forth so that just might be something for the listener to do research just looking at this from a financial standpoint you know, um, how to make the most bang for your, your dollar when you're selling something on eBay. If you're selling a large volume, the store option is very desirable. If you're selling low volume, the general universal eBay dashboard is makes more sense. So anyway, I just wanted to touch on the, the auction strategy for flooding the market and what it does to the buyers and the sellers, as Ryan and I just talked about, and dripping them out over time, the drip strategy. Um, while that may be more work for the seller, you might be able to maximize your profits in that strategy, which is you know beneficial. But time is of the essence, so you know, sometimes the flood option is somewhat more desirable in that capacity. So I want to move on a little bit and talk about keyword value as it relates to eBay auction titles. Okay, so a lot of auctions out there titled pretty well, you know, like 86, 1986 Fleer Jordan. Michael Jordan. They might put 86 or 1986. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Fleer, Michael Jordan, Rookie, or RC, or whatever. All the keywords associated with the card is spelled out. And if, you know, if it's like you're selling a David Justice card, you might put the words David and Dave in the auction title to maximize reach of the keywords themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, this is important because if I type in David Justice, I won't be able to see Dave Justice auction titles. So it's important to really maximize that by, by uh, you know, adding in the nickname and the full name on this thing, but also all the other associations to the card. If it's like 1990 upper deck, if it's PSA graded, PSA 8 or PSA 9 or PSA, whatever it is, just fully, you might put card number in there. You know, all the things associated, make sure it's in the right category. It's in sports memorabilia, trading cards, baseball cards. Make sure it's categorized correctly. You and I both, Ryan, have run into football cards in the baseball category. Yep, yep. You know, and, but those should, those should really, they're, you know, they're, they're, they don't, it doesn't make sense to have them in the baseball category. It makes much more sense to have them in the football category because that's where 
the, the buyers are if they're going to be attracted to that item obviously that goes without saying but it's really important to pay attention to these fine details you know yeah totally and uh i don't know if if our listeners aren't aware but um i, I believe it's fatfingers.com it's a great resource for misspellings so kind of related to keyword searches but there's a lot of um listings that are that have misspellings, especially guys with more complicated names or more complicated names of products. Um, and Fat Fingers has a search algorithm that'll go through and find all possible misspellings of, of some someone's name or a product. Um, so just kind of related in how um, the, the listing and the keywords can really affect what you actually see when you search for something. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't know about that website. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, so um, when you're listing something on eBay, pay really close attention to these things because this is the kind of stuff that will help you drive a sale, you know, mm-hmm. get, get you in touch with a buyer. There are people that are, you know, facetious about this and they joke around about it. Ryan forwarded me a link to an auction tonight with a, a gentleman who, who appears to be selling some really high-end, well-known pieces with relatively decent keyword um, associations on the titles. And then he has one of a card that I don't think has any <laughs> buy a, like collectability whatsoever. And his title is this, coolest card ever, exclamation yeah. mark. So that that has to be a joke, right? But let's say it's not a yeah. joke. Let's say it's not a joke. The, the person looking for that card is not going to search that Coolest phrase. card ever. They're not going to search that <laughs> phrase. Sorry. You know, and so if you really want to be found, you have to think about how people are going to want to try to search for you. Right. And I mean, a lot of ways, like marketers make themselves available on online by spelling out their full names, you know, making themselves like people are going to search for their full name. So they're going to spell their full name. Some of us put in our middle initial to make you differentiate ourselves and the other John Anderson's out there. Right. So, um, this is kind of one of those things where if you really want to be found, pay attention to how you're titling your auctions, you know, and try not to, okay. There's, there's some unethical behavior that goes on in this. And we've discussed this in previous podcasts. Uh, if you stuff your titles with keywords that aren't associated with your card, in some ways that's considered black hat marketing because Mm -hmm. that's dishonesty and people are going to run across your auction, um, looking, hoping for that, that item that's associated with that keyword that's not associated with the card being sold. And I don't want to see that in my search feed. I just, I just don't want to see it. You know, it doesn't do me any good to see something that's not associated with what I searched for in my search feed. Yeah. It's annoying, but, but it happens. But people do it to put eyeballs on the products. Like they'll put RC next to something that's not a rookie card. You know, they'll put super fractor next to something that's not a super fractor. They'll put Mike Trout's in the title for a car that's not Mike Trout. This happens so frequently that it's almost a daily occurrence, right? So, um, I mean, how many times have I seen an auction for a 1990 Upper Deck box and this is Frank Thomas rookie card on it in the title? I'm like, dude, isn't he's not in that. <laughs> 1990 Don <laughs> Russ, Frank Thomas rookie. He's not in that, man. Sorry. I'm not going to like go out of my way to PM the seller and tell him that, but you know, if you really want to build a reputation for yourself that's a good one, a strong one, and you want to make good connections with customers, be honest. You know, do the best you can to serve an audience based on 
where searches are are are, are a place, how searches are placed, what they're placed, like what what's in the search. Mm-hmm. So coolest card ever is unfortunately not something I'd ever search for on eBay, right? But right. if I'm searching for Ken Griffey Jr., I might do a negative search just for Griffey and see what comes up in a block of years that I know he played and not his father. And I, because I know people are going to, they're going to make listings with titles that don't have Ken or Jr. in the listing. That is called negative search. If you put, you say to search Griffey and then you space negative Jr. and then space negative Ken, you'll get a whole different batch of listings. All the stuff that just says Griffey in the title, but it might be stuff you're looking for. So it's good to kind of like, well round your searches in that way and think of things that think of titles and searches that'll accommodate um titles that people might think of because they 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 run out of characters this happens in like when people are selling sets or like things that feature other cards that are that have of players that are collected as well and it's not just griffy and so they only have enough space for to put you know the word griffy in a title so in this way the negative search helps resolve those listings and see kind of what you know you can find in addition to King Griffey Jr. stuff. So I want to talk about that. Ryan, you have any thoughts on that? No, I think we really covered it. It's, you know, once you're on eBay for a while, you start to kind of like mentally filter this stuff out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is important, especially when you're a buyer, you want to make sure everything is, or sorry, when you're a seller, you want to make sure that your title is as, specific and helpful as possible yeah um, but yeah you know it, it, i think it especially comes into play when you're searching for popular players just because guys like mike trout you know sellers will try and work in mike trout in any way possible just because he's so popular All right um so just kind of got to watch out for it um but like i said once you're on ebay for a while you kind of realize that you sort of like start to mentally filter it out yeah and, you know, I mean, if you're like me, you're like, oh, that's cool. Like, I searched, I filtered baseball highest first, and there's a Tom Brady card that introduces the list. I never <laughs> would have searched for it, obviously, but kind of cool that I ran across it. Fine, but those are instances that are rare that I cherish. But th- th- those cards generally just sit there forever anyway. And then you find f- interesting, funny, sort of strange auctions, like a 78 tops card graded an 8, and the guy wants $27,000 for it, you know, or... It just and it's a common, so it's like funny stuff like that is resolved. And you kind of get to find these sort of things. So anyway, I wanted to t- discuss that. Um, moving on here, let's talk about facts and how they always come before quality of reputation. Okay, so let me give an example. I was t- in a recent conversation online. I was talking about a, a Griffey card from '97 that was a rare parallel, but it didn't have the serial number on it. This particular example didn't have the serial number on it. Pack issued ones did. To 30. This one didn't have the serial number on it. And some of the dialogue kind of turned into like people thinking it was trimmed or it was fake. And I was like, okay, do you have proof to back up those claims? Like, no, but I heard it in another group of people that are reputable. It's like, okay, did they have proof to back up the claims? Like, no, but they, they're, they're reputable sources. Like, well, unfortunately, you know, I'm a reputable source and I could just feed people lies all day long if I wanted to, but it's it's not fact like what what would be the point of me to share information that's not factual you know this is kind of where i go with is just because you're well known doesn't mean you don't need to provide facts to back up your claims right 
information right. information and, and facts are king okay so for and and just just for the record just because something doesn't have a serial number on it doesn't mean it's fake it means actually technically speaking it's a replacement card that made its way into the market via a buyout or a bankruptcy or an employee backdoor but there were legitimate printed cards most of the time specifically in the 90s era okay i mean you see fakes tossed around like ACEO, essentially modern-day broder cards, all day long, and they're essentially just counterfeit cards, a lot of them. Some of them are custom that are illegal. They shouldn't be made because they don't have licensing to do that. And then some are just blatant, outright counterfeits, and people call them reprints. They're not reprints. Ryan and I, you just, we, we discussed this in a previous episode. Yes. But, but the, the stuff that doesn't have serial numbers on it from the 90s, the high-end inserts and whatever else, refractors and things, they're not fake. They're just replacement cards that made way into the market at some point. They're legitimate examples of the cards. They're actually just variations now because they they were never rep, they were never used as replacements. If they were used as replacements, you know, let's say I get a bent version of this card in a pack, it's like damaged and I call the company and it's like, "Hey, I got this, you know, 97 totally certified platinum gold Griffey and it's it's got a crease on it." How how can you help me? They're like, what's the serial number on it? It's like, oh, it's 27 out of 30. Okay, so they're going to take a replacement card from their inventory, the ones without the serial number on them. They'll hand number, hand number 27 out of 30, and then send it to that that customer. This is why you see cards with hand numbering on them that where it should be printed on the card. Mm-hmm. You've seen it, Ryan. You've seen these, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might even have some. I have plenty of them myself. But those are ones that were like actually went through the replacement process. The stuff that doesn't have the serial numbers on them, they just didn't get have the opportunity to go through the process. But they're legitimate printed cards. They're not fakes. They're authentic, legitimate printed cards. If you give me fact, factual information to back up the claim that it's trimmed, fine, I'll listen. But until you do that, I I don't care who you are. I'm not going to buy it. I'd need any factual. I don't care if you're, you know. The richest man in the world, and you, you're you're claiming that X, Y, and Z has happened. It's like, well, you can give me factual information. I might be able to sit down and absorb this content. Until then, it's just conjecture. Ryan, you want to chime in here? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I use a lot of, you know, online communities, online forums. Twitter is definitely one of them to, to gather information about the hobby, and I've I've seen some false information or just something that's not entirely true being spread by um, someone that has, you know, like 10,000 posts on a forum or, uh, you know, 10,000 Twitter followers or something. Yeah. So you just kind of have to, um, you know, do your own research. If something is said that you find a little suspicious, um, because there is a lot of misinformation out there in the hobby, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, and these these online communities are great places to, to find out information, but you just have to be careful and uh, make sure you're fact-checking everything. Yeah, you bring up a good point. The spread of misinformation is rampant in the hobby. Sadly, people still think the 52 Tops Mantle is the rookie card, sadly. And I've, I've proven this as I've debunked this claim. On in a blog post with firm, factual, backed-up evidence, what it requires, you know, for performance, longevity to get rookie status in baseball, 
when stuff is released in the hobby, you know, um, you know, dates. I mean, I broke it down. Like, really, when people say that's a 52 Tops Mantle is a rookie, I'm like, sorry, it's not. Here's why. And I provide factual information to validate that, that debunk that claim that it's a rookie. I'm like, no, the 51 Bowman is the only one and forever will be the only Mickey Mantle rookie card. Uh, recently, I came across an auction that I guess had sort of like ran its course in the hobby. I didn't wasn't aware. This is the first time I came across it. Uh, in football, it was a football card where the card was printed with a dirty razor blade underneath the laminate, which is the card gloss in the front of the card, underneath, like in the card, razor blade, dirty one. I mean, this is like, do you, you in '99 or whenever this card came out? I think it was '99. Now I blogged yeah. about it. You can go to RadicCards.com. You could search for this thing. Um, you know, kids were still buying packs. At least I think they were in 99 card shows are still having oh, yeah. in ballrooms, you know, like kids were buying stuff. If, a ki- if my kid bought a pack of cards and pulled this thing, I might Oof. take the company to court. <laughs> You're like, dude, that's, I don't want my kid exposed to dirty razor blade, you know? Yeah, this is ridiculous. So I assume what happened is whoever was cutting the sheets put their razor on the no, I don't think that sheets are cut with by human razors, man. I think those are cut by machines. So did a, a a razor fall out of a machine and before it got sent to the laminate? Here's what I think process? happened. Here's what okay. I think happened just off the top of my head. People in manufacturing use razors to open boxes of product because product is never shipped raw. It's shipped protected in a box. So razor blades or, you know, what razor cutters or whatever, you have one available, you cut it open, you pull the product out put it through the printing process or whatever. And somebody just didn't put the razor blade in their pocket, you know, as as secure enough, and it fell out during one of the steps in the, the chain of, of operation steps. This would be my assumption. I can't back this up with any degree of certainty at whatsoever, but I'm trying to think of a situation in which there would be any, situ- any instance where this would take place, and this is the only thing I can come up with without thinking more in depth about this particular scenario. It's probably a one of one. I can't imagine there's another card with a razor blade stuck on a laminate. It's probably a one of one. I guess I'm I'm actually surprised the I think the the seller's showing some constraint here cuz although they they have it listed for an absorbent price um I would expect some crazy title like eBay one of one or super rare or something but just says razor blade card. <laughs> like <laughs> coolest like card ever thing. Coolest card ever. Uh, yeah. The coolest razor blade card ever. And it's uh, Darnay Scott, who I had never, ever heard of. So yeah. that just adds to the value right there. Um, yeah. Very kind of creepy and weird. And if, if you pulled this, Ryan, what would you do? I mean, how would you, would you take any action? What would you, how would you respond to this? I would certainly try and take some action. I don't know about legal action, but, you know, I, I think at the very least, if you contacted the company and just express your dissatisfaction, you should be able to get some some compensation out of it, some free product or... A free, a free bag of circus animal cookies. Yeah, something... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some uh, some more factory P2 
pieces from their <laughs> from their factory. I don't really know. You know, we're sorry we sent but... you this dirty uh, razor blade in the card. How about a half-eaten bag of circus animal cookies I got on my desk here, like in a drawer? Yeah, random here, I tell you stuff. what. Well, give us, send us the card back, and we'll send you one with a clean razor blade in it. That's true, but really, <laughs> what would you rather have? A, a normal, clean. 1999 Upper Deck Darnay Scott for this razor blade one. Honestly, Which I just one's keep more the card. interesting. I'd keep the card because I, I I don't even look. Here's the thing: with 99 Upper Deck, anything printed is printed in quantity base. We're talking about oh, huge. So who cares? Who cares who it was? I don't really care. I'd want to keep the card because of its uniqueness. Probably. I talk about the legal side, but really, I probably wouldn't take any action. I'd just be like, yeah, that's interesting. Let's make sure I don't touch it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get it sleeved and top loaded ASAP and be done with it. But it's mostly just a talking point, really, you know? Yeah, I'd love to know the history of this card, who pulled it, and if, how many times it's changed hands. And You might email the seller and ask him and, and see if, if that's the original owner. Might be, I don't know. Speaking of things that are stuck to cards, I recently acquired a 1990 Topps Frank Thomas uh, with the gum still stuck on the back. Now, I have some gum-stained versions of that card, one or two at least. Um, so the gum was, you know, peeled off. You could see, like, the dark-colored spot where it used to be. Well, this one I bought still has the gum adhered to the card, which I think is pretty cool because, you know, they printed the heck out of 90 tops, so probably there are other examples floating around with the gum still attached. But I was happy to get this for, like, 6 bucks. It's a really cool item. Um, with the, It's just very kind of, like, immediate nostalgia from the era, you know. Yeah, that gum never dies. It's pretty crazy if you open wax from that era. Um, it's still, still there. It. You can still eat it. <laughs> it still looks, yeah, like... You know, it goes really well with circus animal cookies, too, which yes. is really strange. Yeah, you can use your razor to dice up the piece of gum and share amongst your friends. You can use the razor to get the gum off of the uh, the card without having there you go. staining. I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of utility uses for the razor in a... <laughs> I guess so. In a card. Oh, great, a razor. Just so I, need, I don't have to go to Lowe's now and buy a pack of them. I got the one in the card. How cool. Perfect. If you call the company up and be like, yeah, I got a razor and cards. you guys want me to reimburse you for the razor? Or <laughs> <laughs> I only paid for the card, so I don't really know what you want me to do. Yeah, what do I do? Uh, do you want me to – how do I handle this <laughs> morally? <laughs> That's like a moral dilemma. <laughs> uh, gosh, that sort of covers our podcast. Ryan, Ryan do you want to share anything additional? I think, um, man, I can I can find this video. I'll try and find it, and we can share it on the blog. But there was a video of Michael Eisner, former CEO of Disney, yeah. who's um, a pretty fanatic collector. At least he was at one point. Um, he actually ate an old piece of gum from the 80s um, during this TV show interview he did. Um, so I figure if Michael Eisner will do it, anybody should be able to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any health risk in a eating, you know, gum that's any age. I don't age. think so because I can't, I can't. Gum is one of those things I've never seen good moldy ever. Any age, any age of gum, any old pack, some pulls of gum, it still looks pink <laughs> with like a yep. little dust of sugar on it. Like it still looks the same, you know. And so. Um, I've, I've chewed, I've not on some of the old gum from the eighties in the past. And it starts out just like shattering in your mouth, you know, like throwing a piece of glass against a, a wall. But then after time, you know, a little bit of time and some, 
like the moisture and things, it starts to break down and you get, you know, a, a very stale piece of gum out of it, but you can still chew it for a little while. And there's still flavor. I mean, it's still after like a couple of minutes, it starts to taste like normal gum again. Yes. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing and you chew on it for a while and you toss it and that's, you know, you did it. So, but I, I can't think of any health hazard, but then, then again, looking at it from like a business standpoint, it would be my hope that tops you thought about all this stuff when they were producing gum. Like, yeah, let's just make it not ever be unedible. <laughs> how do we do that? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we make this forever edible, even a hundred years from now? So, gum is an interesting thing in that way that I've I've never seen it deteriorate in quality, which says a lot about it, right? So, yeah, maybe they should start uh, selling cards in like cans of spam or some other stuff that just never goes bad. Yeah, you could get cards, and in the card pack is a piece of spam. If you think about a, a spam can, it's the dimensions are actually pretty similar to a baseball card. You could so, probably squeeze a card in there, like uh, yeah, I think side. it's actually kind of a perfect match. Um, so that that'll be my next business venture is right. spam spam cards. Yeah, you know, I think about okay, you'd have to obviously protect the card in like cellophane or something so it's not gunked up with the spam. Spam's delicious though. It yeah. is so good. You can fry it up. There's so many uses for spam. It's such a great multi-use meat. But I think about cuz the spam edges they're not it's not a square. It's like this like you know, rectangle with rounded edges. So you'd have to find a way to get a card in there without bending the corners in any way. I wonder if that's possible. That's interesting to think about. Spam is one of those <laughs> things you could feasibly last forever. So you could be like, yeah, this is my grandpa's spam collection. <laughs> you know, he just liked to buy spam. <laughs> so, gosh, you know, you could open it up. It's like from the 50s. You still open it up. It's still exactly like one bot today. Like same exact everything. <laughs> Yeah, that would be looks the same, smells the same, has the same consistency. Branding hasn't changed. I'm trying to think of other food products that were associated with cards. Gum is the obvious one. There were the Bell brand potato chips in the '60s. A lot of cards inside the bag of potato chips. Yeah, I think they were inside the bag, but I think they were at least protected by some sort of thin. I think it was I think it was um it was like a wax paper. But I don't yeah. quote me on that. I don't know. I'm just yeah. thinking like because some of those Bell brand chips they have oil staining and if they're in cellophane they'd be protected from the oil staining at least partially, right? Right. Yeah, I I, I don't know obvious. how they're protected though. I, I really don't. I, I know there's but there was those hostess from the 90s you can get those hostess cupcakes and get like a baseball oh, card. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. And then you can go to Denny's and get the Pinnacle Artist Proofs in the 90s and in the early 90s you could do that with the Upper Deck with Denny's. Did Cracker Jack have cards in their Products at one yeah, point. man. Ninety one. They did the re- reproductions of the mini, uh, um, the, the 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 original Cracker Jack cards from the early twentieth yeah. century. The miniature versions of them. Um, there have been a lot of food issues, man. Like a ton of them. Back in you might remember back in like fifties, there was that Frank's company produced a, that set of cards with all those Hall of Famers in it, like Red Show and Dienst and Ted Williams and a bunch of guys. Those cards are actually quite rare and valuable. But as you kind of come forward in the decade, there's post you could get stuff out of the post cereal boxes you might remember those uh-huh. cereal was a great place to get cards when i was younger and there were like batteries like duracell did a thing for a while one year i think 93 I mean, there's, really yeah, yeah there's a bunch of different companies that have produced and try to tie in tie their brand into the, the hobby over the years i think it's kind of oh, cool. Yeah. i like it it's fun you know it's kind of neat well kellogg's kellogg's had the 3d thing yeah right in the 70s 
yeah. late seventies. Okay, there's a lot now that I now we <laughs> tons, <laughs> tons. Yeah. I, so I just sent you the uh, the YouTube links. Maybe you can throw that in the blog post. But all you right, can see Michael Eisner with John Travolta, <laughs> eat a piece of twenty five year old gum from uh, what I think was a Topps product from the 80s okay i'll make sure to link that there <laughs> um that's interesting that's eisner and travolta what a strange mix i know it's <laughs> kind of funny i like that cool thanks for tuning in uh thanks ryan for for um bantering with me over the last 42 minutes sure thank you for tuning in to the radic cards podcast and radicards.com i'm your host patrick greeno and until next time enjoy collecting if you like this content please subscribe thank you enjoy collecting <laughs>